Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read this passage of Scripture, and what's been our habit is I'm going to read it, and when I'm done reading, I'm going to ask for God's help that His Spirit would move us to see the glory of His Son. But before we do that, I'm going to say, when I'm done reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can reply, thanks be to God. And we do that because we're trying to cultivate a heart of gratitude. We have a God who speaks, and so we're thanking him. That's why the early church did this practice many years ago. That's why we're doing it this morning. We're not just trying to be hipster liturgical here, okay? We really do want to cultivate gratitude. So this is God's word here. This is Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 27. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw that away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help. Father, we need lots of help this morning. The passage that we just read, if we aren't listening well, if we're not careful, it, it sounds scary. It leans into that fear that you're just waiting for us to fail and then to crush us when we do. So God, I pray that your spirit would show up and would help us to see what your son is saying and that there really is good news for failures like us. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, if there ever was a great American novel... John Steinbeck's East of Eden would be like in the running for that great American novel status. So I happen to just love this story because it's about this New Englander who heads west to California and finds himself. Like what? Wow. What is not to love about that? That mirrors my story. Uh, But what happens in East of Eden, we see this guy, Adam Trask, and he's a, a genuinely good guy. He's a decent man and he he really, he had a a father who loved him, and he experienced that love, and that's all he wanted from life. He just wanted to create a place where love could exist and thrive and flourish. So Adam meets a woman that he falls in love with, Kathy, and this might be 1950s sexism, but Steinbeck introduces this very complex character who he calls the embodiment of evil, the devil incarnate herself. And so uh, Adam Trask falls in love with Kathy, who was a prostitute. And Adam is going to love Kathy. That's his goal. He wants to love this woman. So they move to California. And they're trying to create this home of love. And so Adam is doing everything he can to just shower his wife with love. They have two kids. And their kids are newborns. And Adam is creating this house. But it's stifling to Kathy. She hates it. She's being crushed. She just feels like she's in this cocoon. She can't breathe. And so, to show how she feels, she loads up Adam's forty-five caliber, puts a bullet in it, 
and shoots Adam in the shoulder. He falls down in just agony. He's just railing from the pain. And in that cold-hearted move that Steinbeck's talking about, she just crawls over his body, walks out the door, and doesn't come back. And Adam is totally paralyzed. Not, not from being shot by a gun, but his whole world just went up in smoke. He has no idea what to do. Everything he thought that was the good life is gone. He was doing his best, and so he's paralyzed. That's what's at risk here for us if we don't see the streams that flow into this passage. These short three verses that we just read can activate tons of fears that we have about God. And these fears can paralyze us. And this morning, I want to invite you out of the cul-de-sac, just that round and round, that dead end, that paralysis of relating to God based on fear, relating to God based on shame. See, some of you think that's just what Christianity is. This is a room full of people who they feel guilty, uh, they feel shame, so they come here, they get that shame wiped away a little bit, and then they go back out into the world, and when they need more of the like anti-shame juice, they come back here. That is not what is going on in this passage. And we need to be careful to hear what Jesus is saying, and we need to be careful to hear what he's not saying. There's real warnings here, there's real danger when it comes to what he's talking about. But, but here's what it could sound like he's saying. Hey, if you have a sex drive, you're going to go to hell. All right? If you like sex, you're going to hell. Is if we just read that fast, it sounds like that's what Jesus is saying. Well, I thought about it. I was like really weighing back and forth how I would do this. But I bet, especially since we're in the Midwest, I bet I could get every single person in this room to blush if I were to read some of the Bible's celebrations of sex. The Bible is not anti-sex. That's not what Jesus is warning about here. And we're going to unpack that in just a second. But he's saying this though. If you look after someone with this desire, this craving, this hunger, that's, there's real danger there. And look, you can do this. I don't normally do this. Like, just pull out your phone for a second because Google is like, you know, I feel like I don't get the same Google as everybody else, but let's just Google something here. What percentage of people look at porn? All right, what I got is from Psychology Today, and it says this. In terms of basic results, they found that 73% of women and 98% of men reported internet porn use in the last six months for the total of 85% of respondents. Here's why this message is incredibly relevant. It is the normal human experience. That's nearly every single person in this room has failed. We have not lived up to the standard that Jesus is holding out here. So what do we do? What do we do? And, and again, that fear that, that's here, that fear is like, hey, if you do this, 
Hell is waiting for you on the other side. Do you feel that fear, that tension that's raising up here? Well, look. The good news that flows into this passage is that this, doesn't, this statement doesn't come in isolation. And when we see the stream that is informing and flowing into these short three verses, you will see that this is actually good news. And it will help you not relate to God just based on fear and shame. Some of you are so comfortable in fear and shame, it's a prison cell that feels like home. Albert Camus, the great father of postmodernism, tells this great story about a guy who's from Algeria. He's on the Mediterranean Sea with his lover. And he just feels the sun, and he feels the sand, and he smells his girlfriend, and he loves her, and there's so much joy. And then he's arrested. He's thrown into jail. And for the first two months, he's totally miserable in jail. He's like, ah, like... How do, I, how do I get out of here? I need to get back to my girlfriend. I need to see the sea again. I need the sun. I need the sand. And then time goes on, and he starts to get comfortable in his cell, and he starts to resent the sun and the sand. And so when he's on his trial, he sees a window for the first time, and he looks out, and he sees the sun, and he says, ugh, can't wait till I'm back in my cell. Some of you have made your cell home. Because that's the story shame tells you. And that's how you think you should relate to God. Well, there is a better way. There is someone who is deeply familiar with shame and failure. And he maps a way forward for us. He's someone who in just raw honesty says, hey, I've been there. Maybe, maybe you feel just the weight of guilt, whether it was last night you looked at porn, or you had an inappropriate relationship last week, last month, last year. However close that guilt is to you, there's someone who says, hey, I get guilt, I get shame, and there is a way forward. So you don't have to be like Adam Trask, just paralyzed on the front porch. He maps a way forward, a ritual that you can do to help you get out of the cul-de-sac of shame and fear. Here's the ritual. I'm going to give you the three steps that David, King David, gives us in Psalm 51. That's where we're headed next. See what I did there? Here's what we do. Here's the ritual that we do when we fail. The, just the, the, it should become autopilot eventually, that we just be, do this. We just keep doing this every time we fail. First, we announce the gospel to ourselves. Announce the gospel to yourself. After we've done that, now we can get curious. Get curious about your sin. Announce the gospel to yourself. Get curious about your sin. And then be hospitable to others who fail. Let's first see how David, in Psalm 51, what he's doing, how he creates this ritual, and where he's going. So just look with me really quickly at verse 1. Here's what verse 1 says, okay, of Psalm 51. This is the stream that flows into Matthew 5. I'll show you the connection later. Here we go. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my 
sin. Well, what did David do? What's the big problem here? So many of you may know the story. Leonard Cohen made it popular. You know, he saw her bathing on the roof. All right, so here's what David did. He was king, and he'd been king for a while. He was supposed to be at battle, but he was like, ah, I'd rather not. So he sent all his people out. And then one day he's walking, and he sees a young woman having a bath on a roof, says to his servants, hey, go, go get her. He gets her, has, a, has an affair with her. She's pregnant, so he kills her husband, and then he's confronted by Nathan the prophet. That's the subscript here. Nathan comes to him and says, hey, what you did was wicked, and this is the story that we get after David comes to grips with what he's done. This, is, this really is sex scandal of all sex scandals. I mean, the story is even worse if we understand it in its original context. So here's the thing. David is probably pretty old at this season in his life. It's late in, uh, in his reign. And we know from the book of Kings that David was friends with Bathsheba's dad. Ugh. It's a creepy old guy. It's gross. All right? And so here's another thing, though. Here's what David does. So, okay, like, just in case you're curious, there weren't baths on the roof in the ancient Near East, okay? That's just, think about it for just a second. It's incredibly impractical. If you live in a country without running water, a roof is not where you're going to take a bath. Because you have to lug all that water up there. Okay, so what we have here is ancient Near Eastern porn. It became all of a sudden relevant. But this is the kind of sex that Jesus is warning about in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the, the it's, not, it's not sex as the Bible describes it. It's this kind of consumerism. That's what he says. If you look at a woman with this desire, this hunger, this consumerism that says, I have an appetite, you, you're going to fill it. And, and that really is like what the heart of pornography is. Porn at least says this, like, hey, you be naked, you be vulnerable, I'll be private. We're not going to have this interaction of just naked lives, total vulnerability. You be vulnerable. I'll be private. Because I have wants. I have needs. I have desires. And you just, I, you just fit into those. See, like, I'm sure that maybe Bathsheba and Uriah, like, I'm, maybe they had their disagreements. But I'm sure she didn't want the guy dead. David is, has total disregard for, this, for her, her wellness, her livelihood. He just sees her and wants her total objectification. And this is incredibly shameful. It's wrong. Like, if this had happened today, we rightly would be outraged at this type of behavior, this abuse of power, this, this just total disregard for others, especially weak, vulnerable people. And what does David do now in his repentance? What's the very first step he does? Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love have, and because of your great compassion. David is announcing the gospel to himself. By doing that, he is re-narrating the story that shame tells. And he's not just doing this to satisfy our curiosity. It's not just like, hey, whatever happened to that David guy? Did he get that stuff worked out? 
What he's doing is he's saying, I have failed. And he's turning around to us and saying, when you fail, here's what you need to do. And you need to start by announcing the gospel to yourself. It's no mistake. It is no weird coincidence that David uses the words unfailing love and compassion. Those two words combined to describe God were used at a major point in Israel's history. In the Exodus, in Exodus 34, Moses is hanging out with Yahweh, and they're talking outside of his tent. And Moses is like, I want to see your face. And God's like, you can't. You'll die. He's like, I want to know you more. Who are you? I really want to just move deeper in this relationship. And God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in a rock, and I'm going to go over you, and I'm going to tell you who I am, and you're going to see my glory. All right? And so who does he say he is? Listen, this is Exodus 34, 6. And he, that's God, passed in front of Moses, announcing, Yahweh, Yahweh. This is the only time in the Hebrew Bible that God says his name twice. We do well to listen to what follows. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. Same words David uses. Not a coincidence. Slow to anger and a Bounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness. Here's what David is doing. He's appealing to who God is. He's reminding himself of what God does because of who he is. If you are in the cul-de-sac of sin and shame, you are telling yourself who God is. You have a picture of God who says, yeah, see, I knew you were going to fail. I knew you were going to mess up. Yeah, you did okay. You did six months here, but you know, you did six months without sinning. But the reason you messed up is because you're a phony baloney. You're not the real deal. You're a fraud. And David is saying, fight back. Re-narrate the story that shame tells you. God does not feel compassionate and gracious in the moments of your shame, in the moments of your failures. That's why we need to make it a habit to routinely announce this message. It says this, he is slow to anger. That's not his natural posture. It's not his knee-jerk reaction. He's not waiting to just jump on you when you fail. We're going to get a little bit, we're going to get a little nerdy here for a second, okay? So in Hebrew grammar, if there's no verb in a sentence, you just have to supply like an equals sign. So if it's like, it'll just say boy fast, you just equal sign, the boy is fast, okay? In this sentence right here, this is how it looks in Hebrew. It just says, Exodus 34, 6, God, gracious and compassionate. So you supply an equal sign. God is grace. God is compassion. Grace is not this like thing that he doles out to you and you have a limited supply. Like, okay, you've messed up again. I'm going to give you grace this time, but please, 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 you don't have much left. So we got to, we got to like, you got to make this last through till Christmas. Okay. So like, you know, I don't know. Install apps, get rid of your phone because you don't have much grace left. No. Grace is who God is. It flows out of him. This is the Hebrew Bible's version of what John says. God is love. God is grace. God is compassion. Compassion. 
tender heartedness. Is that how you feel God feels toward you? Do you feel like that's true? No, you don't. You feel like he's mad at you. That's why we need to announce the gospel to ourselves when we fail. And if you can't announce the gospel to yourself, find someone who can announce it to you. We need this truth. You are re-narrating the story of your life when you announce the gospel to yourself. This is a tried and tested ritual. David is saying, I've been there, I've been paralyzed. Here's how you walk out. You remind yourself who God is. And there's a ton of freedom there. See, if you relate to God just based on fear, just based on shame, there is no freedom in that relationship. And and, and that's actually what these sociologists are pointing out is what's happening with sex before marriage. There's a book called Premarital Sex in America, and it's written by two sociologists. They're not writing as theologians. They're not, I don't even know if they're Christians, but what they're writing as is, here's what they're saying. Here's, uh, they surveyed a bunch of people who are cohabitating, and they're saying like, hey, what are the effects psychologically that cohabitating has on you? Here's what a lot of respondents said. I feel like I'm on a three to five year test drive. I just have to perform can't be myself. I have to be who this person expects me to be because there's no commitment attached to that. And so I have to earn. David is not appealing to that in his relationship with God at all. And that's what he uses to fight back the power of this consumeristic sex. Like, I know what you're thinking. Look, Porn's a big problem, and you know how we just get over it? We just need accountability. We need to yell at each other. We need rules. We need rules, rules, rules. That's not how David fights sin here. Uh, The philosopher Jamie Smith, who I quote way too much because he's the man, he he recently said this. He said, there's really only two things that can change a person. Two things that can fundamentally change who you are. Suffering and a deep encounter with love. See, the desire, what Jesus is warning about in the Sermon on the Mount is this consumerism. You meet my needs. Sex, in the Bible, is this. Hey, we've made a commitment. We are united together. I am in it to win it with you. Good or bad. So you're loved. You don't have to perform. We can be vulnerable together. I can have bad days. You can have bad days. I can't live up to the expectations of your favorite porn star. We love each other and know each other. And from that safety, affection grows. Or as one pastor says, the the naked bodies of sex is a picture of the naked lives having that sex. See, and this this is what we need to push back. When you start to think about it like this, you start to see that porn isn't beautiful. And look, like, I, I, I don't want you to think I'm a prude or that I'm anti-sex at all. But like, porn is having devastating effects. I can just speak this on men, on young men. Here, here's, if you're, fellas, listen up for a second. 
Porn is not sex ed. Porn is not sex ed. It's entertainment. So here's, here's just a thing. And it's like, it's like basically as one uh, sexual doctor, I don't know what he is, like Dr. Ruth for guys, said like, it's kind of like watching Fast and Furious and then trying to learn how to drive. Okay? Like things are exaggerated in porn. Okay? Body parts are exaggerated. Movements are exaggerated. There's makeup. Okay? That's not real life. And then here's what happens. You, you learn sex that way and you expect your partner to perform that way. And that's crushing for women. Now, if you're a feminist and you have this perspective of like, no, 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 porn is empowerment. I hear you, but you need to know, like, I can just speak to this for myself as a guy. It's not empowerment for me. Porn is enslavement. One person's liberation leads to another person's enslavement. And that's what Jesus is warning about in the Sermon on the Mount. So in the Old Testament, there's a principle that the punishment must fit the crime. Okay? Jesus is going to talk about it later with this principle of eye for an eye. That doesn't mean your brother punches you in the eye, you get to punch him back. What that means is, if you steal my car, you owe me a car. So it's the punishment must fit the crime. Here's what Jesus is talking about. Sex, this consumerism type of sex, has this hunger that can't ever be satisfied. And we know that. Studies say, as you... As you keep leaning into this and giving into it, it just, you need harder and harder stuff. And so Jesus is saying this, if you let that eat you alive, the end of that road is a hell where you are eaten alive. It's a poetic justice. That's what Jesus is warning about. Now, I know what I'm doing, okay? You're like, okay, you just talked a lot about grace, and now I feel really crummy. Thanks. Here's the thing. As we fail as new creation people, that jail cell that Camus talks about that you and I can live in, it's not home. John 1 says this, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. The right. You have rights. Know your rights. You have the rights of a child of God. Okay? Newsflash here. You cannot have two natures. You are either alive or you are dead. Okay? So this is not something this rights as a child of God. He's dangling out in front of you as a carrot. When you fail which we all do, 98% of people, in that, according to my random Google search, are failing in this. When you fail, you do not lose that sonship. You do not lose that. You do not lose being a child. You aren't made for that prison cell. And you don't get out of it by trying harder to get out of that cell. That provides a tremendous freedom. And that's, that freedom that that provides gives you permission to get curious about your sin. See, if, if we relate to God totally on the basis of fear and shame, whenever we fail, ah, I'm sorry, no, run, oh, sorry, my bad, I had nothing to see here, I'm sorry. 
But if we're a child who's loved and we failed, we have a father coming alongside us and letting us get curious. That's, what, that's the second step of this ritual. Get curious about your sin. Some of us, ooh, I gotta be careful how I say this, but here goes. Some of us are too quick to repent. Here's what I mean by that. God, I'm sorry. Uh, oh man, I am so sorry. That was super bad. I'm sorry. Okay, okay. But here's how David, here's the ritual David wants to walk you through. Not this quick repentance. Here's what he wants to walk you through. This is what he says in verses 5 and 6. He says this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in my gut. You taught wisdom in that secret place. Here's what he's doing. He's announced the gospel to himself. He's loved, he's cared for, even in the midst of his fresh, fresh failure. And now he's saying this, God, you desired truth in the parts of me I can't see. wonder why I'm looking at porn. I wonder why I'm failing. See, and I think we can take a play out of AA's playbook here. This is genius, and nobody actually knows why this works. So AA, they surveyed uh, several people who'd gone through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. They interviewed them and said like, hey, You've been sober for X amount of years. What do you miss the most about uh, your days of just drinking? And people said a lot of things. I miss the laughter. I miss the companionship. I miss just having a place I belonged. You know what people didn't say? I miss the dizzying effects of alcohol. I miss the, the euphoria of being drunk. And here's what AA is onto. Maybe getting drunk isn't just about getting drunk. Maybe there's something else driving that. So here's how AA works. They look for triggers. They say, hey, keep a journal, keep a notebook. What happens? What, when are you feeling like drinking? Well, I'm alone, and so I feel like drinking, going to the bar. I'll call my sponsor. So I found a, a trigger that trips something off, and I replace that habit with something good. See, you can only get there if you're curious about yourself. And that's what God wants you to do in the midst of your repentance. That is repentance. It's not just apologize as fast as you can and offer to make it right. Rather, the freedom here says this, like, hey, let's look. Because not all porn is created equal. Some people look at porn because they're bored. Some people look at porn because they're lonely. And this is what we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, the difference between trying and training. The trying method just says, ah, okay, you went three months without porn. That was super bad. Let's try to get it up to six, okay? All right? But the training method says, hey, let's get curious. What's really going on here? What's driving this? What's, What's really happening here? That's how free people battle sin. Because nothing is at stake. God has committed to you. He loves you. You're a child. You have that right. Let's get curious about our sin. And doing that fundamentally changes you. Being someone who wants to know why you do the things you do, it changes the way you relate to other people. Which is the third habit David's getting at we can actually start to be hospitable. He's saying this, be hospitable to other people who fail. Now, I don't mean by being hospitable to lay out a nice spread, get a good charcuterie board. That's not what I'm talking about, about being hospitable, but that's nice. You can do that. What I mean by being hospitable is providing an environment 
where what you just experienced, you're creating that for other people. That safety of being loved and known by God, that curiosity about why am I doing the things I'm doing, we experience that so others can experience that too. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. Here's what David says, Return to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. He doesn't say, stop looking at porn and now go wag your finger at the culture. He's saying this, that I will teach transgressors your ways. Well, what are the ways that he's laid out here in these rituals? The God who loves failures and gives them the freedom to be curious about what's driving them. So we need James K.A. Smith. See, there he is again. He talks about the two types of friends in the world. There's one type of friend where they just kind of come and they just kind of dominate. And so everything in that friendship becomes about them. You just kind of try to emulate them. They kind of crush you. So if C.S. Lewis fans, this is kind of like puzzle in the last battle, okay? There's no relationship there. It's just, boom, I'm in charge. Rather, a different type of friendship is a friendship where someone is with you and they draw things out of you. They draw you out of you. They listen. They care. And that's what David is talking about when that's what I mean when I say be hospitable to other failures. Let them have an environment like the one you just experienced. It'll be transformative for you as well. One of the things I... I hate to do is I hate to give illustrations of you without asking you, but I, someone just said to me like a week ago that they've been here for a year and a half and don't feel like they have any friends. That's tragic. This should be a place where friendship abounds because we've been loved unconditionally and we're people who regularly announce the gospel to ourselves. We get curious about ourselves and it just kind of flows out into other people. Hey, who are you? What makes you, you? See, this type of friendship is, is not natural to the extroverts out there. So my wife and I will go to parties. I'll know like 20 people and she'll know two. And then she'll ask me about those 20 people. And I'm like, I don't know. I just, I remember names, but she will know people deeply. So this is something I have to work into to doing this. And so here's just a couple hacks I've learned to try to be, to aim toward this target of being hospitable. Here's one. Just get together with someone. Take them out for coffee and say this. Tell me your story. Just tell me your story. And if that leads you down to a ton of dead ends, here's another hack you can do. These three simple words. Well, tell me more. So here's the thing. They start talking about their relationship with their parents. Oh, oh, oh t- tell me more about that. Get curious about what makes people tick. And then here's what we can do. We take our story and we show the, the similar, the, the convergence there and how God breathes new life into our story. When, when, the, when it leads there. Don't be awkward. Thank you. But like, this is, this is what it is. Like, that's how we experience this healing. That's how we experience this hospitality. We tell our stories. And look, there's another way to do it. You're like, I am not going to ask somebody out for coffee. And that, especially if they're in the room, it's going to be super awkward. 
Like, they, like I know why you're doing this. You just heard Craig talk, and you're just doing that. I'm not telling you my story, okay? Here's, just a, here's an avenue for people who aren't really going to do this. Community groups. I, we have community groups here, and I really believe in them. I believe in them because the gathering is just part of the point of what we're doing. Like, just the presence, being around someone who knows, who sees, and cares is transformative. Look, we're people who this ritual, as we practice it, as we get better at it, it starts to become second nature, and then we just go public with that. And so being around people who regularly make this a practice is going to be transformative. It's going to be life-giving. You may not feel like, you're like, man, I show up to this thing week after week after week, and nothing's happening. You don't know that. You don't. But you have no idea what that person would look like if you weren't there. Don't underestimate what God is doing just by showing up. So how did Adam Trask get off the porch? He spent a year of his life just not knowing what to do, spiraling out of control. He didn't even name his two young kids. He was on the cul-de-sac. And then his neighbor, Samuel, picks him up. And Samuel, uh, Steinbeck describes him as not a violent man at all, but a wise, caring, gentle man. And many uh, literary critics think that Steinbeck based the character of Samuel off his grandfather. So Samuel finds Adam paralyzed, stuck with just this, I failed, I couldn't create the love I wanted to, what's the point, what do I do? So Samuel, this wise, gentle man who's not violent at all, slaps Adam around. And then he drags him into the woods. And he forces Adam, against his will, to walk. To put one foot in front of the other. To take notice of nature. Why? Because happy people walk. Here's what Samuel is doing for Adam. He's saying, we are going to live like this is true until it becomes true. Here's why we do this ritual. Maybe rituals make you uncomfortable, like, oh, that just seems like a dead thing I don't want to do. But here's why we announce the gospel, why we get curious about our sin, and then why we create hospitality for others. Because this already is true about us, and so as you start to live like it's true, your emotions eventually catch up. It's not fake it till you make it, but it's fake it till you realize you've made it, I guess. And here's, here's what's super cool about this, okay? Here's what David says. Create in me a clean heart, O God. That prayer was not answered in David's lifetime. It wasn't. He didn't get to experience the fullness of that. But what does Jesus say when he shows up in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's announcing blessing to all these people? What does he say? Blessed are the pure in heart. And who is that? Us. He's given us a clean heart. That's why we do this. Because it is true and it doesn't feel like it. And so we just do this ritual. We trust. And eventually the feelings will follow. Failure does not define you. And it doesn't have to paralyze you either. God isn't 
mad at you. God isn't mad at you. And since we love the Bible, here we go. I'm just going to proof text that. I found this verse earlier this year, and it is changing my life. Okay, this is Isaiah 54, starting in verse 9. To me, this is God talking, this is like the days of Noah. When I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. Okay, so what happened? There was a flood, and God said, hey, I'm never going to do this again. And he didn't, right? Okay, that's what he's saying. This is what's happening now. So now, I have sworn not to be angry with you. If you're here this morning, and you know Jesus, God isn't mad at you. There's freedom there. God isn't mad at you. Yes, you may have failed last night. God isn't mad at you. God, his posture is this faithful love and tender heartedness. And so we walk like that's true because it is true. And one day, your feelings will catch up. Failure does not define you, and the gospel can drive you out of that cul-de-sac. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful you are our Father. We have a God who loves us, who's near to us. Your presence makes us whole. Your presence transforms us. So God, I pray that we would believe this to be true, that we would work the gospel deep into our hearts through this ritual of one who failed as well. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.